I wasn't trying to write anything definitive because it's such a big, beautiful, diverse community. It's a community of communities. Welcome to Book Me, sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. I'm Costas Halabrezos. Today, author Rebecca Rose. We can always wonder how much we don't know about an historical figure like Alexander the Great or Marie Antoinette, or daily life in the years of the Great Plague or before European colonization in this region. But it doesn't take centuries to lose the fabric of history. Rebecca Rose concerned herself with disappearing opportunities to capture a period that's much closer to us. She's the author of Before the Parade, a history of Halifax's gay, lesbian, and bisexual communities from 1972 to 1984. Rebecca, welcome to Book Me. Thank you. Can you remember when you first got a, a sense of urgency about talking with members of those communities about those years? Yes. Yeah, so it was back in 2015, and a lesbian elder named Anne Fulton had just passed away. And I had become good friends, and I'm still good friends, with a gay elder historian and archivist, Robin Metcalf. And we used to have semi-regular coffee dates at his apartment, and he told me about Anne's passing. Anne passed suddenly and unexpectedly and took with her a lot of history. And so I wrote a piece about Anne for The Coast, The Weekly, calling her a founding mother of lesbian activism in this city. And then from that, I, I discovered that there were so many under or untold stories and that it could be a much longer, much, much longer article. And so I wrote an article called Before the Parade for the Coast. And then that's what morphed into this book. Before the Pride Parade, for instance? Yes, where... before the Pride Parade. Yes. Did people of that generation, when you approached them, did they find it unusual to think of themselves as elders? Absolutely. And so I spoke to a lesbian elder named Nancy Brister or Nancy Hamilton at the time, and she had a pretty hard time grasping the idea of being an elder. And she said, you know, you're you're always young in your mind. But for us, I mean, before this generation, there were, of course, have always been two-spirit, lesbian, gay, bisexual, queer, trans people, but they haven't always been able to be out and they haven't always been able to be activists. And so really, this is our first generation of out and activist elders. And so these conversations between these elders and between younger folks like myself, I'm 35, so I'm not that young anymore, are historic in themselves because it's this intergenerational exchange that hasn't happened before. Now, you begin five years after Pierre Trudeau, who was justice minister at the time, before he became prime minister, said there was no place for the state in the bedrooms of the nation. Yeah. 
which was a line he lifted from a journalist, by the way, named yes, Martin yes, O'Malley. Yes, but, yes. but some might say, well, that took care of discrimination based on sexual orientation. Right. But, but take us back to 1972, where you begin, right. and, and what life was like for people who weren't heterosexual. Right. So the first thing to note is that homosexuality was not actually decriminalized in 1969. It was just that people who were adults in private um, could have um, homosexual sex and there could only be two of them. And so um, arrests for homosexual sex actually went up after 1969 because um, the vast majority of gay sex at the time was still happening in public spaces because, you know, in the, in the late 60s, it still wasn't accepted. And so you might have been married, you weren't bringing someone home, or it or your neighbors might see you bringing someone home. And so it actually is a, is a myth that homosexuality was decriminalized in 1969. But I think something that was a reality for a lot of folks was violence and specifically gay men. I mean, throughout the 70s, um, gay bashing was a thing. So every time I spoke to a gay man for this book and I asked them if they had been bashed, no hesitation, yes. And so that was a common thing. And a lot of it was about a block or two from where we're sitting right now. At the Triangle. Now, yeah. Tell people about what the triangle was, the yes. boundaries of the triangle. Yeah. So in Halifax. Yeah. So in Halifax, it's kind of right um, beside Citadel Hill, which was another big cruising spot, and it was it was a triangle of the streets essentially um, that includes Dresden Row, Spring Garden, Spring Garden, and I'm forgetting Queen. Queen. There we go. Queen. Obviously, Queen. Um, <laughs> And a lot of men used to cruise around there. And there was also a lot of sex work that happened there. Um, you know, sex work has always been part of our community and sex workers have always been part of our community. And so, yeah, violence was a thing for women. A lot of folks were in heterosexual marriages and had kids and were scared to leave those marriages, scared to come out because they were scared to lose their children. Um, socializing for lesbians, I heard, mostly happened at host parties. And then socializing for men outside of cruising would happen at bars. And there was, just down the street on Barrington, in the Green Lantern building, um, there were several bars. So Club 777 was the first run by David Gray, and that was a gay bar. And then there was the club, which was David. T-H-E-E. T-H-E-E-K-L-U-B. Why? Unclear. Um, run by David Gray. And a lot of folks went there. There were a few women who went, but mostly men. And then there was Condon's, run by Condon McLeod, who then, for my generation, opened the pavilion. And uh, then there were some straight bars that folks used to frequent, but they would get you know, either kicked out or asked to move along, and then they'd have to find another space. Now, when it comes to uh, the people you uh, talk to about this, this period, um, uh, clearly in the book, you know, it became very important to find someone who actually had documentation, anything, archives. And, and you quote someone as, as saying, we were too busy surviving back then. We weren't thinking about archiving. Yeah. But as you mentioned, Robin Metcalf <laughs> became the unofficial archivist yeah. of this. What What are some of the, the finds you, yeah. you, you made in, in his literal archives. Yeah. So the quote you just used is from Monica Forrester, and she is a um, racialized, two-spirit, trans elder in Toronto and also a, a sex worker and sex work um, 
Advocate, and that I believe was in Marvelous Grounds, which is a book all about um, Black, Indigenous, people of color uh, who are queer and trans in Toronto. But yes, Robin became the unofficial archivist and has been archiving since he's been involved. So he got involved here in 1975 and helped to resuscitate the Gay Alliance for Equality, which had been founded in 1972, but then um, went to sleep for about a year. And then he helped to resuscitate it in 75. And so he's been squirreling things away since that time. And so he's got some here in Halifax, but mostly in his um, home on the Eastern Shore that was his mother's. So everything from balloons that have gay until the day I die, uh, printed on them to poppers bottles. Poppers, of course, um, gay men would sniff so they'd be loosened up for sex, Um, to buttons, to leaflets, to posters, a a little bit of everything in Robin's archives. And definitely the biggest to this point, I'd say, archive of LGB material in the province. Including lots of minutes of lots of meetings of yes. lots of committees. I mean, there seem to be so many formed in that period. <laughs> yeah. But give us an idea of the range of issues the people in the community tackled. Yeah. And so, I mean, a lot of the minutes that I got were from the Nova Scotia archives, and they actually have the uh, Gay and Lesbian Association fonds there. And so when gala was going under and rumors up on Gottingen Street were going under in 95. Lynn Murphy, a bisexual elder, said, oh my gosh, we have to save the papers. God bless her heart. And gathered them up and kept them in a, quote, undisclosed location, which was her basement. And then when she moved into an apartment just up the street on Spring Garden, she brought those into the archives, the Nova Scotia archives. And so that's where all the minutes are. And it's phenomenal. So issues that folks were dealing with. I mean, there was the Civil Rights uh, Committee, and it was kind of the political wing of the Gay Alliance for Equality. So censorship was a big issue. Censorship from, um, you know, there was a bookstore, alternate bookstore run by Tom Burns, who was also a founding member of the Gay Alliance for Equality. And so books would get stopped at the border and not allowed to come in. Um, Censorship, I think we'll talk a little bit about the CBC fight. So censorship on the CBC, which is a strange adversary to have um, when you think of it now. So censorship was was a big thing. And and what about human rights? I mean, it it was right. 1996 before Nova Scotia included sexual orientation yeah. in the Human Rights yeah. Act. But the activism started officially, I guess, according to your book, about 23 years before that. Yeah. Yeah. In 1972. So Gay Alliance for Equality, when it was founded um, in 72, really, you know, went face first into things. And so they were advocating for um, sexual orientation to be included in human rights legislation provincially. And that's something that they pushed during elections. They sent candidate questionnaires out. And, you know, at one point they essentially said, if you don't send this back to us filled out, we'll assume that you don't like gay people, which I thought was pretty to the point. And I I appreciate that approach. Uh, They also at the time were fighting against conversion therapy, which is something that has popped up a lot recently. You know, in in Nova Scotia, there was a recent case where a camp, a Bible camp, tried to bring in some folks from a church that advocated conversion therapy and folks fought back against that. The community fought back against that and it was canceled and then legislation was brought in. Um, 
to ban conversion therapy here with some caveats. But yeah, they were fighting against conversion therapy, but it's specifically the type where they would hook you up to electrodes and show you pictures of, um, you know, semi-nude uh, men for men and then shock you if you had a, uh, if you were aroused by it. So um there are definitely some echoes in the book because the conversion therapy issue has been coming up a lot recently. And then, of course, human rights for trans folks were only recently codified on a, a federal and provincial level. So, um, you know, we've come a long way, but but still there's so many echoes of, of the 70s. But while this period of uh, intense activism was going on, uh, it's not to say people were marching in the same parade I mean, you can't use the, the the phrase "the gay community" as an umbrella phrase for groups with very different concerns and agendas. Mm-hmm. And I mean, today we'll see two S L G B T Q I A plus. But so, give us some examples of some of the differences that emerged in that period, and how things were negotiated. Yes, the the community is not a monolith and a generation is not a monolith, as Robin always reminds me. And so when I first started the book, I was kind of looking at the community through the lens of the Gay Alliance for Equality. I'm an activist. I'm an organizer. That's my background. And so I was interested in the groups, the official groups that existed. And then I realized by only looking at it through that lens, I was leaving out folks. So um, a lot of lesbians or bisexual women, for example, didn't feel included in the GAE. And so uh, a lot of women that I spoke to chose to exercise their, you know, their gay or lesbian or bisexual activism through the women's movement in the province, in the city. And so International Women's Day was a big thing. Take Back the Night, Reclaim the Night, originally it was called, was a big thing. The peace movement was a big thing. So folks probably will know Muriel Duckworth's name, Voice of Women. So a lot of women got involved in the the peace movement. And so that was, that was important. In the early 80s, there was a Halifax women's housing co-op, which was founded by lesbians in their 20s and 30s because, you know, housing discrimination was a thing. And also they wanted to, you know, create an environment where they would have, you know, a de facto family and where women who had kids could live with women who didn't have kids kind of thing. And there were definitely some women who worked with NGAE and I don't want to erase them. So there was, there were the Ann Fultons and the Marianne Mancinis and the Deborah Trosks and the Lynn Murphys and the Catherine McNeils and on and on and on of Halifax. But there were women who chose not to work with men. And then of course, um, there were black folks as well, right? Black and gay folks um, from the very, very beginning. So all of the black folks I talked to said that the Gay Alliance for Equality was quite white. Um, there were folks like Chris Shepard who were, uh, you know, Chris DJed at the Turrip, uh, which we'll talk about, but also was on the executive. But it was quite white from all accounts. Well, could you read an excerpt from your book? Yeah, sure. On the evening of April 22nd, 1977, Chris Shepard was enjoying a night with friends at the jury room bar in downtown Halifax and was halfway through a drink when the bartender told him that the establishment would not serve, quote, people of your kind. That night, about a dozen men were thrown out of the lounge. 
The bar's manager reportedly told the men, just take your queens and get the fuck out of here. Shepard refused to leave. He and a friend were arrested and charged with being drunk and disorderly in a public place because, he says, they couldn't arrest them for simply being gay. The incident garnered substantial media coverage, including in the Fourth Estate, whose headline read, Gays Barred, Trial by Jury Room. In the article, Neil Gillis, the general manager of the bar, was quoted as calling the men undesirables. He later told the paper, they're so obvious, it's pathetic. Quote, society hasn't accepted them, and I certainly haven't. I think I'm probably speaking for the average straight person. How can you be sympathetic to those people? Those people, however, made up a substantial proportion, 40 to 60% of the bar's patrons, according to a gay man named Bill, who was quoted in the article. Bill, also, emptied his glass on Gillis after a tense back and forth that fateful night. It was not the first time that the bar, which had recently been bought by a former St. Mary's football coach, Al Keith, had discriminated against gays, or against those who were assumed to be gay. The manager had previously phoned the gay line, requesting that gay people not be referred to the bar, and staff once refused to serve a group of actors from Neptune because they were wearing makeup. The night after Chris and his friends were refused service, Anne Fulton, Deborah Trask, Robin Metcalf, and Jim McSwain returned to the jury room to test their policy. Robin was wearing his signature Gay Rights Now button to make the situation abundantly clear. When the foursome reached the front of the line, the bouncer told them that the bar had, quote, trouble with your movement last night, and that Robin and Jim wouldn't be let in. Anne later wrote in a letter that the door staff had told the group they would admit the women, but specifically not the men, because, quote, we know what they do. Quote, after a bit of an argument, he realized that the lesbians were very much part of the gay movement, Anne wrote, and all four were shut out. Now, if you're a real community, you, you do need a place to gather, and you've just described how difficult it was mm -hmm. to go into uh, the average bar. Tell us about the heyday of the turret. Yes. So from very early on, there were some bars, like the Club and the Green Lantern and um, Condon's, but the community wanted a bar that was run by and for the community. And so the turret actually came out of Robin and another man being kicked out of the Heidelberg, which was a German restaurant and bar on Spring Garden. And during the day, Randy Kennedy, who was a, um, a gay man and a local dry queen, Lily Champagne, told me it was very straight, but at night it got quite gay. And so they got kicked out for dancing with a member of the same sex, each other. And then after that, they decided that they needed somewhere to go that was run by them. And so they started a disco in the Church of England Institute, which is 1588 Barrington Street, recently known as the Khyber, but the Turret Building. And that biweekly and then weekly disco morphed into the Turret. And if you ask anyone from that generation of LGB folks about the turret, their eyes just twinkle. <laughs> so I asked Lauren Izzard about the turret and he said, woohoo, now you're talking. <laughs> you know, Walter Borden said it was like coming home. And that's something I heard over and over again from many interviews, both women and 
men, uh, that it was like coming home, stepping into the turret. It was a safe place. Nobody was going to hassle you. Although some fights did break out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was a safe place and it was run by and for community. There were definitely some fights. Um, most of the fights were between women. You have to understand that, um, you know, the to be a working class lesbian or dyke in those days, you had to be scrappy. You had to be tough. And so there were a lot of fights between, um, you know, what people would call the bar dykes at the time. But people were proud. They never had to call in the police. They dealt with it amongst themselves. Um, the only time, you know, they would have to call in the police was when there were straight folks trying to gate crash and cause trouble. And then often when the police, you know, responded, it was way too late or they didn't respond at all. And the community had to rally together to fight the, quote, fag bashers themselves. Uh, there was a turning point in 70s activism, and you alluded to it already, uh, when the community took on the refusal by uh, my former employer, the <laughs> CBC, yeah. to play public service announcements for the gay uh, counseling service, the yeah. gay line, the gay phone line. counseling service. T tell us how that played out briefly. Yeah, so there was a public service announcement. It was pretty unremarkable. It was just that there was a gay line and that folks could call in for referrals or for counseling advice. And the CBC refused to air it. And they had a myriad of, of reasons to not air it, depending on who, who, <laughs> who the GAE was talking to and when. So, you know, they took issue with the word counseling. And then they said that, you know, you had to be very careful when counseling, you know, those types of people because there was a lot at stake if you were to counsel someone in, into becoming a homosexual, right? You could you could ruin someone's life and break up families and that kind of thing. So the CBC refused to air the ad and it became a flashpoint around censorship. And people picketed the CBC building. Yeah, people picketed. And so it was the first LGB known picket in the city. And, you know, there there was a good showing outside of the CBC building and they picketed. And that actually led to the first known nationally coordinated day of action across the country. So often our history gets left out of national narratives and... You know, people assume that we're this backwards place and that, you know, we're behind everyone else, the Torontos and the Montreals and the Vancouver's. But uh, we were right in there and, and often we were at the fore. And with the CBC picket, we led the way. What about what HIV AIDS did to the community in the 80s? So I chose to end the book in 1984. Um, that was the year that I was born, coincidentally. But also, HIV-AIDS obviously had come to the fore before 84, but I really felt like that's when it kind of took over as the main issue and when AIDS activism really picked up. And there is so much that happened in this city and across the country in terms of HIV-AIDS activism. I just couldn't fit it in the book, and I didn't. I thought I'd do a disservice if I tried to tack it on, and so... Will there be a volume two then? <laughs> um, un unclear. Definitely not right now. I'm still recovering <laughs> from volume one. But um, all of the elders I spoke to drew an imaginary line between pre 
and post-AIDS, right? So you talk to them about the turret, about the 70s. Chris Shepard called it a freewheeling time. And there was a lot of sex and there was a lot of unprotected sex. And then that all came to a halt, as Jim McSwain said, when, when AIDS came to the fore. Right. I mean, there was still a cruising scene for sure, um, but people didn't know how it was spread. And it was called originally gay related immunodeficiency disease grid. And so they thought it was a gay cancer. And so it really did change things. And folks were in rumors by then, which was after the turret, the bar. Another Halifax club. Another Halifax club that the GAE ran and then later gala up on on Gottagen Street and Randy Kennedy talks about, you know, the whispers about people who had AIDS when they would come into rumors and Randy would try to, you know, give them a big hug and serve them a drink and like, you know, fight that stigma. And then, you know, there's a really powerful excerpt in the book where um, I quote from Scott McNeil and Scott McNeil just passed actually. And he passed of ALS and he was a founding member of the gay health organization in Halifax, the first AIDS organization that then turned into McAIDS with a bunch of other folks, including Dr. Bob, Dr. Bob Fredrickson. And he talks about a friend, Graham, who asked to come over to his house in the summer with his partner and stay there because he was having trouble breathing. And Scott slept on the couch and Graham and his partners slept in the bedroom in front of Scott's air conditioner because he had an air conditioner. And when his breathing got so labored, um, they convinced him finally to go into the hospital. And uh, he was di diagnosed with HIV AIDS, and then he died soon after that. And that's what was happening. You would find out, and then someone wouldn't be showing up at rumors, and they would be dead. Just finally, Rebecca, there, there are many gaps in, in the period you researched so well. Uh, what should someone who's listening do if they have something to add to the history? Oh, my goodness, yes. And so I called this a history of LGB Halifax. It's not the history. There will never be the history. I wasn't trying to write anything definitive because it's such a big, beautiful diverse community. It's a community of communities. And so I was happy to include many stories from African Nova Scotian folks. So we've we've got Chris Shepard and Lauren Izzard and Walter Borden. And Walter really added so much in terms of also um, the civil rights movement perspective in terms of the Nova Scotia project with Burnley Rocky Jones and Joan Jones, who also just passed. Um, and there were gay folks within within that group, right? And so I was happy to include those voices and Faith Nolan, who is a black Mi'kmaq um, singer-songwriter singer -songwriter and activist. And so I was happy to include those voices, but there could always be more. Um, Mi'kmaq voices is something I did have. Um, Walter and Faith are both have Mi'kmaq ancestry. And I did speak also to Andrea Curry, who is a Métis uh, from the Métis Nation um, in Manitoba, who is also part of For the Moment, folks might know, um, but definitely would have liked to have more Mi'kmaq voices. So if there are more stories, I mean, you know, there's always opportunity for more books. I know that Nimbus is really interested in um, bringing in diverse voices and publishing diverse voices. But 
you know, books aren't the be all and end all. Um, <laughs> maybe podcasts. shouldn't say that. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> there are podcasts, there are articles, there are zines, there are documentaries. And I hope that this book is a jumping off point. So people from all the different corners of our community can take what they take from the book and then run with it. And if folks are interested in re researching these histories, people can reach out to me. I would love to to introduce them to the archives that do exist um, and, you know, give them pointers and then watch them run with it. Rebecca, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Rebecca Rose is the author of Before the Parade, a history of Halifax's gay, lesbian, and bisexual communities, 1972 to 1984. To hear more conversations with the people who create books in Atlantic Canada, go to bookmepodcast.ca. That's bookmepodcast.ca. And share the link with friends and family or your book club pals, everyone you know who's a reader. We'd also love it if you could rate or review our podcast on iTunes or other download sites. If you'd like to comment on a podcast like today's with Rebecca Rose, drop us a line. Our email address is info at bookmepodcast.ca. Book Me is sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. Thanks to the Halifax Central Library for the use of its studio. Our producer is Robin Grant, and Lynn Fox is the technical leader of our parade. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Now, let's go read. Music